are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Over the, uh, the course of this year, I'm trying to build in some alternate preaching voices more or less once a month. And tonight, it's uh, my delight to have Beth Downey-Sawatsky preaching for us. Beth has been kicking around here since you were in high school and, uh, and through a couple degrees and some adventures and time in Newfoundland that I could actually share with you and Scott, you have uh, flourished and so love to hear what that flourishing person has to say to us tonight built out of these two extraordinary readings. Beth. Thank you very much, Jamie. It was a a real treat to be asked. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Our text today from the Gospel according to Luke is not the Sermon on the Mount, which you'll find in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And even though it sounds awfully like, it's not even just another version of the Beatitudes from that same sermon in Matthew. This text represents more or less the same event point in the career of Jesus' preaching, and its themes strongly overlap. But for Luke's own particular reasons, this text as we have it in his gospel is something else. This is the Sermon on the Plain. This is the blessings and woes. One of Matthew's priorities throughout his gospel account is to convey as strongly as possible to his readers the divinity of Christ, that Jesus the Messiah is God made flesh. And in keeping with that, Matthew places Jesus on a mountaintop, high over his listeners, echoing other important scenes from Torah in which the word of God is handed down to the people through a chosen deliverer who receives that word in face-to-face encounter with God. So all of us good Jewish readers should be getting strong echoes of Moses on Mount Sinai, bringing down the Ten Commandments with his face shining with the imminence of God's presence. Luke's priorities, as shown in his approach to this scene, are slightly different. For one thing, Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, and many scholars believe Luke was Gentile himself. His gospel shows a real emphasis on demonstrating the equality, the equality of human beings under God. Hence, the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew puts Jesus up high, making a metaphor out of the landscape, while Luke puts Jesus and the people on level ground. Everybody, everybody, from all Jerusalem, Judea, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon, on even footing. His arrangement of the tableau is almost a a foretaste of John's gospel language about dwelling, with its emphasis on Christ's intimacy with people. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another thing about Luke is that he's one of the late gospel writers. Many scholars place him as a contemporary, even maybe a companion of the Apostle Paul. And there really are some tight harmonies between Luke's gospel and Paul's letters when it comes to this emphasis on the equality of human peoples under God. When Paul writes in Galatians, in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. 
so that now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. That is very much the sentiment, very much the gospel that Luke is preaching here. And all of this may sound a bit like six of one thing and half a dozen of the other. Matthew emphasizes God's supremacy. Luke emphasizes humanity's equality under Christ. Same, same, right? Not quite. There's a meaningful difference between telling people that Jesus is the supreme ruler of all creation, co-eternal from the beginning with God the Father, and in telling people that Jesus loves and rules over all creation equally, with equal regard, grace, power, and will to gather humanity unto himself. It feels different. So with that framing in mind, I'd like to take a closer look at what's going on in this episode of the Sermon on the Plain and what Jesus might be driving at with these prickly blessings and woes so different in their rhythm and weight from Matthew's stream of Beatitudes. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a multitude of people from all over. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him. For power came out from him and healed all of them. Matthew spends a lot more time on that point about the healings, the the wonder-working power bit. Luke takes something of a less-is-more approach. But I find... The scene doesn't lack a certain shiver of emotional punch for being brief. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Imagine the crush. Imagine the hands. Imagine the eyes of the people and the hunger is shining in those eyes. Imagine the spark in the atmosphere. And that deeply felt but intangible zap when someone makes contact. Just a finger brush, and that divine static charge courses through them, just exactly like electricity waiting for a channel to bolt for earth. And with that touch, they are healed of all their afflictions. That's the activity of the scene. And Jesus looks up at his disciples, we're talking the whole crowd of followers, plain of people, and he speaks these things about those who are blessed and those who are marked for woe. It's an interesting word choice, woe. It has a sort of poetic gravitas to it. Its meaning is somewhat intangible. Whenever I hear the nature of God portrayed like an equation, something that can be manipulated towards a result solved for X, I get my hackles up. I just do. (laughs) I feel so strongly that the nature of God is so much higher than our own nature, so beyond our comprehension, that it must be more like a law of being, more like physics than algebra. Isaiah's language captures it for me when he writes, 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Frederick Beekner, in his book Beyond Words, writes that in the biblical sense, if you give me your blessing, you irreversibly convey into my life not just something of the beneficent power and vitality of who you are, but something also of the life-giving power of God in whose name the blessing is given. Even after old half-blind Isaac, Beekner writes, discovered that he had been hoodwinked into blessing the wrong twin, he could no more take that blessing back and give it to Esau than he could take the words of it out of the air and put them back into his mouth again. Blessings are like that. They're like a static charge unleashed. They have aim and drive objective, effect, and an incontrovertible nature. That's true when one person blesses another in God's name, how much more so when God blesses us directly. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. That almost sounds to me like it should start with beware. It almost sounds like it should start with fear not. So when I hear passages like these blessings and woes preached as though they describe a kind of cause and effect relationship in which human beings earn God's compassion or retribution by doing or not doing certain things, I just get squirrely. It's that word for, isn't it? Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. That word for basically means because, and in the course of all these repetitions, I think it starts to stick in the ear, it sticks in our minds, until, preoccupied as we naturally are by our little human senses of justice, we build up a sort of overall impression of causality. We get to thinking that these blessings and woes are imposed because of something. We can get to feeling like we ought to be suspicious of joy, fearful of plenty or contentment, always waiting for the other shoe to drop. We can get to thinking that blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled, is some kind of magic spell. If we could just figure out the exact way that we're supposed to claim that statement, the goods will manifest, being hashtag blessed, Getting money, becoming filled, attaining joy is something we ought to be able to do for ourselves right now. That is not how blessings work. In fact, what if causality has nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus' point? What if Jesus is simply describing how things are? The human condition for all people at all times, in all places and trying to show us how God permeates that condition 
What if Jesus is not saying everything happens for a reason, but simply saying everything happens? We might be more in the province of Ecclesiastes here. For everything there is a season. When we are in seasons of joy, plenty, and peace, it is a fact of life that seasons of pain, need, or confusion are probably yet to come for us. So there is a kind of shadow of woe that abides with those who are enjoying times of comfort and ease. But that shadow should make us prayerful, generous, compassionate, not afraid. Because equally, in those times, there is that static charge in the air, like the one you feel on a humid summer day when the air grows very still before a storm. That charge that indicates the presence of power, God's blessing, God's guaranteed presence and faithfulness in your life through whatever may lie ahead. It's there for those in the midst of storms, too. Blessed are you who are poor, who need, who hunger, who weep. Because for everything there is a season, and for hard moments, there are also sweet moments. But more than that, blessed are you because God's gift and God's call are irrevocably with you. Everything happens. I think, in all honesty, everything does not happen for a reason, but everything happens, and it always has. And God is working all things together for our good. Those two things go together, gift and call. God's gift of blessing, of faithful presence, in each of our lives is the force that empowers us to answer the call when it comes to us, to participate just as we are in that working together of all things for good. Even at our most broken, for someone at just the right moment, God has appointed us to be a gift. And so on that note, just before I close, I want to pay a little bit of attention to one last feature of this passage, which is Luke's return twice to this thing about prophets. Because sometimes we are called to gift one another with comfort and understanding. And sometimes we are called to gift one another with tough truths. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, reject your name as evil. For this is the way their ancestors treated the prophets. And woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I think we can all agree that it's important to pay attention to the patterns of feedback that we get from the people around us in life. This text should not be read as an encouragement to double down self-righteously in the face of criticism or to fear others' well-earned good opinion. For all that electricity metaphors have been a staple in this sermon, God knows we do not need more polarity in our shared life of faith. We need to listen to each other. I think more so this text is a message of caution about pedestals and pillories, raising people or ideas or institutions up as all good or all bad, 
whenever our concept of self or the other or of community is monolithic all one way, that perspective has become skewed and needs correcting. So as we meditate this evening on blessing and call, I would like our community also to spend some time thinking about members of this congregation who have blessed us as a church family with challenging truths or who have given voice to challenging elements of God's call on our community life. I would like us especially to think about people who have done that for us who may no longer be part of this community or who haven't been around in a while. Because even when the messengers who carry it into our lives may fade from view, God's gift and God's call are irrevocably with us. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.